and I'll use the same example again, which is if you look at South and North Dakota, here you're looking at two states um, which were once part of the Dakota Territory and, and, and the Great Sioux Nation and other nations. Uh, it has less than two million people, both of those states together, and yet they have four senators. Right, each state has two senators. Well, you look at the state of California, which has 44 million people, and they have two, just two, like half the number of senators. And so, uh, as you can see in the way in which the balance of power is really given to these these rural white voters, and many of them who um, have this historic connection to the um, dispersion of Indian land given to white settlers, and are still holding it five, six generations later. And so um, so I just really wanted to show kind of, so you were looking at what's happening in Europe, but it has ties here too. And um, and the, the and international ties when you're considering also um, the impact of, of um, Putin's aggression as well, destabilizing um, any progress that has been made uh, to try to, to address the issue in a measured way and the, the issue of climate change. And um, so um, we're almost at the end of time here. I, I really wanted to thank you I, uh, for listening, if you haven't listening, and um, and just, yeah, I think it's um, I think it's really important to understand the structure of colonialism and how it impacts things and to recognize the United States is a colony and, and then the impact on colonial powers back in their own homelands in Europe, um, how, how that is playing out there. And, and, um, and unless we look at these things in a structural manner, we won't really understand um, how to change them. And um, so... Um, that's all I have to say this week. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm Jacqueline Keeler, and this has been American Standoff, and I um, hope you have a great week. I'm looking forward to the hearings this evening. You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. The time is 11 a.m. In accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. This is Ursula K. Le Guin, and you are listening to KBOO, the cheerful voice of social conscience, KBOO Portland. Welcome to Between the Covers on KBOO Portland 90.7 FM Public Radio. Interviews about books with the people who write them. I'm your host, Avi Mar. Omar el is an author and journalist. He was born in Egypt, grew up in Qatar, moved to Canada as a teenager, and now lives in the United States. The start of his journalism career coincided with the start of the War on Terror, and over the following decade he reported from Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, and many other locations around the world. His work earned a National Newspaper Award for Investigative Journalism and the Goff Penny Award for Young Journalists. His fiction and nonfiction writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Guernica, GQ, and many other newspapers and magazines. His debut novel, American War, is an international bestseller and has been translated into 13 languages. It won the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award, the Oregon Book Award for Fiction, 
the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize, and has been nominated for more than 10 other awards. It was listed as one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, Washington Post, GQ, NPR, Esquire, and was selected by the BBC as one of 100 novels that changed our world. What Strange Paradise, named an instant classic by the New York Times, is the winner of the 2021 Giller Prize and the Pacific Northwest Book Award and was named a best book of 2021 by the Washington Post, the New York Times, NPR, The Globe, and Mail. Lydia Yuknovich says, What Strange Paradise by Omar el just resuscitated my heart. This novel, following a boy who survives a refugee passage and a girl whose homeland feels fractured, dares to unite us on the shore of shared human experience and redefines hope in the face of despair. I want to read this book every single day. I want to live in a world where the beauty of strangers is a heart song. Welcome to Between the Covers, Omar Elakan. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so you were born in Egypt and your family moved to Qatar when you were five. What prompted the move? My father had to get the hell out of Egypt. My father loved Egypt. I mean, he grew up in one of the oldest neighborhoods in Cairo, this place called El Hussein. And when he was a kid, he would sneak into the old coffee shop there to listen to Naguib Mahfouz hold court. And like, he loved Egypt. Um, but the political and economic situation were getting really, really bad. One day he had a run-in with two um, soldiers who were bored and decided to give him a hard time. And he got lucky he got out of it, but I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back. So he started looking elsewhere for work. And he actually found a job in Libya, of all places. And so we're in the airport. I'm four years old, I think, at the time. And we're getting ready to go to Libya. And the way that names work in the Arab language is my name is, my first name is Omar. My middle name is my father's first name. His middle name is his father's and so on and so forth. So my father's name is Muhammad Ahmed. Muhammad Ahmed is an incredibly common combination of names. Turns out there's somebody on the terrorism watch list with the same name. We get dragged into secondary. By the time they figure out they have the wrong guy, the flight has left. My dad's job offer is revoked. And a while later, he ends up getting a job in Qatar, which is this little peninsula sticking out of Saudi Arabia. Qatar at the time was on its way to becoming probably the richest place on earth. And that's where I end up growing up instead of Libya because of a coin toss at an airport so that's how it worked out. And that little sort of misunderstanding of the airport has had more of an impact on the trajectory of my life than anything I've ever done or not done for the rest of my life. But that's how we ended up in Qatar. So then you moved to Canada when you were a teenager. Your family goes to Canada mm -hmm. and then you settled in the U.S. Uh, so how do you think you, the, that range of cultures contributed to your voice and perspective in your fiction? I mean, it's done a couple of things. The central thing it's done as it relates to my writing is that it has made it impossible for me to try and reach the place that my idols write from. I was probably never going to do it anyway because I don't have the talent, but the life experience just isn't there. When I talk about the writers who are in my pantheon, you know, the people who I really look up to, I'm thinking of people like Naguib Mahfouz. I'm thinking of Toni Morrison. I'm thinking of writers who marinated in a place. Mm. And so they understood that place. They understood the country in a way that allowed them to write about it in a sort of marrow deep kind of intensity. And I can't do that because I left Egypt when I was five. So my blood's from Egypt, my, my family's from Egypt, but I left when I was five. My formative years took place in Qatar, but I could never become a Qatari citizen. They wanna protect the oil and gas money so they don't hand out citizenship. Canada's home, but I showed up in Canada 16, and now the U.S. is home. I'm a dual citizen. But both those places feel too far removed from my own chronology. You know, you show up to a place when you're a teenager. I showed up to the U.S. when I was in my 30s. So what happens is that my writing, as a result, is very unanchored. I write about people who don't have a good answer to the question, where are you from? And I'd rather not. I'd much rather be the kind of writer who can dissect a place but I can't do that. And so instead I write about the opposite. I write about a kind of placelessness. 
And that is a direct result of the kind of upbringing I've had. And that's never going to change. It's, it's too late for it to change. Can you see the advantages of that sort of homelessness of perspective? I don't know if it's an advantage, but it is a unique perspective, for better or worse. I remember there's this thing in Canada called Canada Reads, which is this weird competition. It's a survivor-style competition they have every year where they pick five books and they get five Canadian uh, celebrities to advocate for each of the books. And they start on a Monday and they vote off one book uh, every day until they have, you know, the last book standing. And it's really weird. Writers are not used to being in that kind of competition with each other, right? But I've been fortunate enough to be on that show twice. I had my first novel be on that show and my second novel. And both times in the sort of auxiliary criticism of the book that inevitably pops up when you're in that kind of competition, there's always this sense of, well, this is nothing like my life experience. This book says nothing to me about my own life. And I always want to say, you know, you're absolutely right. Because, you know, I would sell two books if I wrote exclusively for the demographic that would get this on a visceral level, which is people who were born in Egypt and then moved to Qatar at age five and then moved to Canada at 16 and then moved to the U.S. at 30. You know, there's three of us, basically, right? And so I don't know if it's an advantage, but it does cause me to write a kind of book that I think had I had a stable geographic existence, I would never be able to write. That's what I was thinking is it's also a psychological place you're coming from. Like you were saying, late arrival to a place and having to make your way. It's a very particular kind of psychic space where you were, you've been walking around. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about the hierarchy of home uh, and a hierarchy along the axis of privilege. So at the very top of that hierarchy is an actual geography. You can point to a place and say, this is mine. And then as you start moving down, you start to get to more ephemeral and more abstract notions of what home is. You know, there's a difference between the geography is mine versus, for example, what I have, which is a passport. I have, I have legal citizenship in a place, which means that as a brown Muslim guy, I'm slightly less nervous when I go through airport security now because I have the passport, you know, that sort of thing. As you go further down, you start getting into really abstract things. And at the very bottom of the list, is where I operate, which is memory and relationships. For me, when I think of home, I don't care in the slightest about Qatar as a place. I don't, I don't like Qatar as a place, to be perfectly honest. I don't like going there. But when I think of it as a set of memories and as a set of relationships, that's home. Because, you know, that's where my first kiss was. You know, the place, the place where it happened is now like a Four Seasons and it looks nothing like it did when, when I was there and so on and so forth, but that's where it happened. And so that's generally where I operate when I think about what home means to me. Uh, home is a set of relationships and home is a set of memories. So I have, no, I have no direct connection to Brooklyn, for example, but my best friend from Qatar happens to live in Brooklyn now. And whenever I go visit, Brooklyn is home. I don't know. I don't know a single street. I get lost walking out the door. It doesn't matter in the slightest. My best friend is there. And so that's home. And it's a very sort of, like I said, ephemeral and abstract definition, but it's the one that I have no problem saying, this is mine. As a journalist in Guantanamo during the Arab Spring, you observed what I've heard you call the load-bearing beams of overt violence, the way language is deployed to create distance and allow turning away from violence. By labeling, we dehumanize people fleeing climate or economic disaster and sanitize killing innocent people. Did your experience affect how you wanted to write fiction specifically with that language? It did, very much so. Both at a sort of sentence-by-sentence sentence level, but also at an overarching level. Um, there's a story I go back to a lot about Guantanamo, which is the day we were touring the prison camps. And I was asking one of the soldiers a question. And I said something like, you know, so when do the prisoners, and as soon as I got to the word prisoners, the soldier stopped me and said, we don't have prisoners here, sir. We have detainees. Because it was vital that they not have prisoners because prison, prisoner implies a prison sentence, which has to be defined. Uh, a detainee you can just hold indefinitely without charge. So even though they interrogated the hell out of people in Guantanamo Bay, 
there were never any interrogations in Guantanamo Bay. They didn't call them that. They called them reservations. The detainee has an 8.30 p.m. reservation meant that they were going to be taken into the interrogation sheds. I think it's very difficult to support violence in a vacuum. I think you need those load-bearing beams. If every time the United States accidentally killed some children or a wedding party that they thought was an Islamic terrorist, they called it that, they said, hey, we just killed some children, that would be a lot harder to keep doing. That would be a, a much harder mistake to keep doing time and time and time again. But when you call it collateral damage, that's a much more distant thing. Mm-hmm. And I think besides the actual weapons of war, besides the bombs and the bullets and the guns, the single most important thing you need to wage war and to wage war with minimal consequence is an artillery of language. And that's when what's been perfected in places like Guantanamo Bay is the artillery of language necessary to support the entire infrastructure of violence. And it was an incredibly insidious thing because even now as I'm harping on about it, part of my brain is thinking, who cares? It's just words. It's not a bomb going off, but it supports a bomb going off. And so when I'm writing, I'm not only cognizant of that particular misuse of language, I'm cognizant of the obligation I have as a writer to stand in opposition of that misuse of language. And so I try to call it out as much as possible in the work, because I think it's something that's very easy, not only to accept, but to adopt. You can see this in a lot of media reports. They talk, especially when, for example, domestically, when they talk about anything cops do, you know, uh, a person was killed when a bullet went through their home and engaged with their head or, you know, whatever weird passive nonsense Mm -hmm. is being parroted because it came from an official source. I try my best to do the opposite of that. I fail often, but I think it's part of my mission statement as a writer is to stand in opposition of that particularly cowardly and insidious way of using language. I was thinking when I was getting ready for this interview, it was um, the latest school massacre happened. And I was thinking about this very point that you're bringing up is how on earth do they come up with any language that would make anyone be able to excuse dead children? It, It brought that up for me, what you have been talking about, about you need a lot of language if you're going to try to get away with that. Yeah, it's it's an art. It's a dark art, but it's an art form. And then the people who are good at it are almost universally rewarded for it. You know, I think of the Ted Cruz's of the world. Uh, Ted Cruz has, has figured out a linguistic mechanism by which to brush these things off. And I'm not saying that in the abstract. I mean that you can go look at his Twitter feed and just search for the phrase lifting up in prayer And you will see literally about half a dozen lifting up in prayers. Heidi and I are lifting up in prayers, the victims of insert massacre here. Heidi and I are lifting up in prayer. It is an art form and you are universally rewarded with the lack of consequences if you do it properly. And that is a terrifying thing. You're listening to Between the Covers on KBOO. Portland, 90.7. So circling back to your fiction, when you're writing a story where even the even the basic language of this of this novel, the word refugee, language around migration, um, was were you conscious of that as you were sculpting the sentences that in trying to tell this story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, What Strange Paradise as a novel is very much about that strange negative space between people's capacity to understand one another in every possible way, not just linguistically. And a lot of the mechanisms of that are taken from my own childhood growing up in Qatar. Uh, Qatar's population is about 90% non-Qatari. It's people who came from elsewhere in the world to cash in on oil and gas money. And so, you know, as a kid, if you're on the beach one day, and you see another child and you want to make friends, you sort of naturally assume that they don't speak your language. And so you're, you're initially resorting to sign language and sort of, you know, gestures and that kind of thing, just because you know the makeup of the place you're in. But I was very much cognizant of, of the way language is used to classify human beings as well, which is another spectrum 
of, of deliberate misunderstanding. You know, where I lived, and, and really this applies to most of the world, there is an entire spectrum of terminology for what to call someone who isn't from here. You know, you started the most dehumanizing, uh, an alien, an illegal, uh, an economic migrant, a migrant, a refugee. And then as you work your way to the privilege end of the spectrum, if you're a white Westerner living in the Middle East, for example, you don't get any of those terms. You're called an expat. And an expat is someone who's doing the place a favor by being there because they don't have to be and so on and so forth. So you understand that spectrum sort of implicitly when you have to live in that environment. One of the weird things about tackling that kind of linguistic spectrum in the context of a novel is that, you know, What Strange Paradise is kind of fabulistic. There's parts that are deliberately kind of fantastical. But the parts that feel the most fictional to me are quite often the parts where I just took what somebody was saying verbatim in real life and put it in the text. So there's an example of a politician in the book who um, keeps referring to a child migrant, keeps referring to the child as it, because the politician doesn't want to humanize this human being. That, when I read it on the page, seemed like cartoonishly evil, like to the point where you're thinking, okay, you could tone this down. That is a verbatim transcript of a real politician in Greece. So I, that was one of the difficulties of trying to tackle this particular issue. Um, is that we've gotten to a place where it is so ingrained that when you put it down on paper, it almost seems fictional after the fact. And I don't know how to how to deal with that. That's a weird challenge for a writer. Well, well, because the layer of desensitizing is so heavy, how do you bring it back to a realism in the language, yeah? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things working in, in tandem. One is what you just brought up which is this notion of being desensitized. I think particularly in this part of the world and particularly during the Trump era, almost as a psychological self-defense mechanism, people learned to be very temporarily outraged because you knew that tomorrow some other scandal or some other injustice was going to come out. And you had to compartmentalize because otherwise you'd be overwhelmed. You'd drown in it, right? Mm -hmm. And so people, I think, developed that kind of defense mechanism of being very temporarily outraged. And I don't blame them for it. I think it's an incredibly destructive thing, but I don't blame them for it. Yeah. The other part of it is that particularly when we're talking about something like people crossing the Mediterranean looking for safety, if you live in this part of the world, there is zero consequence to not giving a damn about those people. There's, there's no downside of any kind other than whatever damage is done to your soul, I suppose. Uh, and I think those two things in tandem make it uh, a very difficult problem, not only to assess, but to write about. You have said, I don't know what I'm doing when you're talking about your writing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I do know why. Can you speak to that in terms of this novel? Yeah, whenever I start a, a novel-length project, I create this, fo this file in my computer called a Y file, which is a, a Word document that just has two questions in it. Uh, what are you trying to do? and why. Uh, and until I have a good answer to both of those questions, particularly that second one, I don't consider the project viable. You know, I'm not a particularly talented writer. I'm not particularly good at anything, to be perfectly honest, but I am quite stubborn. I think my only real talent is stubbornness. And so I know if I latch onto a project, I'm going to go through all 10, 12, 20 drafts. I'm going to spend years on it. I'm going to wake up one day and it'll, you know, 10 years will have passed or something. And so as a way to preemptively make sure that stubbornness doesn't cost me a decade of my life on a project that uh, ends up being frivolous, I spend a lot of time thinking about why I'm doing something. I don't spend as much time thinking about the mechanics of getting it right because I very rarely if ever get it right. You start writing the novel and then the novel pushes back and tells you what it's supposed to be. And that process can take years and years and years. But when you're in the valley and the novelty value has all worn off and nothing is exciting you about it anymore and you need something to hold on to, that initial thesis statement, that initial mission statement is a great life raft. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about why I'm doing something. Even if I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, you know, sentence to sentence, I still know why I'm doing it. What was your why on this book? 
I think I wanted to write against that privilege of temporary, um, of instantaneous forgetting. I wanted to take a comforting fable that Westerners have been telling their kids for the last hundred years, and I wanted to invert it to tell a different kind of story. And I wanted there to be a consequence to looking away. Mm. I wanted the reader to do the opposite of what I think a lot of us have been doing over the last few years, which is being temporarily outraged, thinking that's enough, and then moving on. Mm -hmm. I think a novel, if it's anything, it's a place to dwell. And I wanted to say, don't look away. Mm -hmm. um, because these are human beings. These are not statistics. These are not a horrible but unavoidable thing that is happening all the way over there. There is no all the way over there. And in a sense, that is very particular to this project. But in another sense, it's common to almost everything I write. Yeah, it sounds more like an underlying motivation for the persistence that's needed to complete something is is that. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at that file recently, a few days ago, because I was teaching a class on plotting a novel. And it was the first time I'd read it in about five years. And what was interesting is that a lot of the paragraphs in the answer to the first question, what are you trying to do, had nothing to do with the finished project. <laughs> like, we're just so out there and completely unrelated. But the why was pretty solid, was pretty, you know, had, had maintained its sort of integrity throughout. So I'm, I've gotten used to that. One thing changes quite a bit, but the other doesn't. So to talk more specifically about what Strange Paradise, um, Amir, the little boy at the heart of the story, is lured onto the boat after following his uncle who snuck away from the family. We come later to find out what the intended exploitation was in that being lured. And it's one of the themes of the book I found is exploiting someone more vulnerable in one's community and outside of one's community, the smugglers and soldiers. Are the layers of exploitation an important theme presenting the this particular story? Yeah, I was thinking a little bit about the very strange and slim symmetry between exploitation and kindness. One of the things they have in common is that they both demand asymmetry. Um, there's a line in the book where one of the characters, one of the more villainous characters in the book says, you know, have you ever tried to be kind to somebody who's better off than you? There's, a, there's an asymmetry that's, that is necessary for both kindness and exploitation to take place. And a lot of the book is about that asymmetry. It's about not only how we order a society when we have asymmetry in place, but how much we order society assuming that that asymmetry has to be there. I mean, so many of the systems we've set up in place essentially just assume the existence of an underclass that will always remain an underclass. I mean, I'm not just thinking about some abstract you know, child smuggling ring operating out of North Africa. I'm thinking about the vegetables in your store uh, and how they got there. So much of the systems that we have in place are dependent on a permanent underclass. And this book, I think, takes place at the collision point of the fantasies that people on either side of that class divide have about one another. Mm. You know, here you have these people on a boat who very desperately want to get to Europe because there's this notion that if I can just make it to the West, everything will be okay. And that's not true. A lot of things will be okay relative to the part of the world I grew up in, but a lot of things absolutely won't. And then you have people in Europe saying, well, these people are all barbarians at the gate and we need to stop them at you know, any means necessary, even if it means wrecking our own society in the process. I don't know that any of that is possible if you don't have a fundamentally asymmetric society. So I think that's what a lot of what the book is dealing with. So you said that Peter Pan is structurally sort of the basis for what Strange Paradise in a way. And I wanted to talk a little bit of, flesh that out a little bit. So Amir is a lost boy, but instead of sort of freedom and joy and adventure seeking the way Peter Pan defines himself, um, Amir is a lost boy who's constantly only under attack and in danger. How did you decide to tell the story through Amir? Yeah, I mean, I often talk about about what Strange Paradise is a kind of repurposed Peter, Peter Pan. And I think people who hear that description and then read the book are expecting sort of, you know, kids in green tights flying around and that sort of thing. And it's not it's not that. It's very much beneath the surface how, how the, 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 the referencing is happening. I to this thing, I often go back to this uh, thing 
uh, Jorge Luis Borges once said about literature, that all literature is just tricks and that no matter how clever your tricks are, they eventually get discovered. Um, my tricks are not particularly clever. My central trick is inversion. I take something headed one way and I flip it around or some, you know, something to that extent. And in this case, I wanted to invert a popular and comforting fable, a Western one. And I settled on Peter Pan in part because over the years, over the last hundred years or so, it has already kind of been inverted. When people talk about Peter Pan today, they generally talk about Peter Pan syndrome or something like that. You know, the man who refuses to stop acting like a child. The origins of Peter Pan are the exact opposite. J.M. Barry, the playwright who wrote it, when he was a kid, his older brother died in a skating accident. I think it was the day before his 14th birthday or something like that. And it crushed his family. The, his mother never recovered. But one of the things she would often say to try and comfort herself is, well, at least he'll never grow old. And so that's the origin of Peter Pan. It's not the man who refuses to stop acting like a child. It's the child who never gets a chance to become a man. And I wanted to take that and have it be the basis of my story. That said, there was no interest of mine to sort of make that a very overt thing. Mm. So it's, it sort of sneaks under the current um, for, for the vast majority of the book. But I was thinking about this notion, obviously, of, of Neverland and what, it, what, what Neverland as a concept means. And this idea of the two central verbs in Peter Pan, you know, you fight or you fly. And um, that's it. There are some people for whom that is all of living, is you fight or you fly. All of that seemed very relevant and doubly so because migration paths in general have a very fabulistic quality to them. Mm -hmm. This notion of crossing the seas, trying to get to shelter, or trying to get to home. And we can go all the way back to the Odyssey, which is referenced quite often in the book as well. There's something very fabulistic about it. And so I wanted to take a comforting fable and I wanted to use it for my own purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what, what Strange Paradise ends up being. So the other main character, Vanna, is also a child but a young teen living on the island who decides to help Amir. And most of the after chapters are the two innocents moving through systems of exploitation and perversion of power operating. But she's in a privileged position in an unhappy family living on the island. It opened the question of what it is to try to be good or ethical as an observer of cruelty in which your family participates. So I was wondering... What's Vana here to wrestle with? In my mind, she's someone who is coming to terms with the immense power that elements of chance have had in the trajectory of her life. Mm -hmm. uh, the color of her skin, her choice of parents, uh, her choice of geography to be born into, which of course, these are not choices at all. Uh, they're things that happen to you. And her starting to come to this very daunting understanding that whatever she does or doesn't do in life isn't nearly as impactful on the trajectory of her life as these things over which she's had absolutely no control. Obviously, there's an element of projection on my part there because of the way my life has played out. But I think she's trying to figure out what it means to be a decent human being, knowing that the privileges of chance have worked in her favor. And so what you end up with is a person who's being faced with a problem that really no 15-year-old should have to deal with, but she does. And of course, it's magnified many orders of magnitude by the presence of this child who just shows up one day that she knows nothing about, and she decides to help him sort of on the spot and doesn't really know what she's doing. But I think one of the interesting things about her as a character is that there is that element of self-interest that is not going away. Um, even though she's trying very, very hard to be kind, to be a good person, to do what a good person would do, that idea of being a good person is still the this, this sort of overriding thing. That's what's important, more so than the outcome, more so than anything else, is that she be a good person, which I think of as a, as a trait that I have gotten to know quite a bit more since I came to this part of the world. This notion that me ending up being a good person or doing what a good person would do is the, is the main thing here. That's what matters. And so she's dealing with all of this 
and uh, she's dealing with it in, in a context that is much more urgent and fraught because it involves this child who one day just shows up on her doorstep and she's doing the best she can, I think is, is the very least that can be said about her. If you're just tuning in, this is Between the Covers on KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. So one more staying with Peter Pan, if that's okay. Can I bring the general in? Um, so the general pursuing, I mean, that's, that would, that's one of the parts that felt most fairy tale esque was the general's, you know, one minded pursuit of one little boy um, and closely resembles Captain Hook. Uh, if we're going to stay with the story, why do you think the general stays so focused on one little boy? Yeah, so some of the references to Peter Pan are more obvious than others in this book, right? So we have Colonel Kethros, who is my Captain Hook character, who, you know, instead of missing a hand, he's missing a foot, and so on and so forth. But when I was thinking about him, I was thinking a little bit of, um, I had this physics teacher in high school who was obsessed with this idea that um, you should never memorize formulas. You should, you should always be able to derive them from basic principles. So you shouldn't memorize the formula for the arc of a ball that's thrown in a vacuum or something like that. I will give you distance and speed and position and you you figure it out. And I think of Colonel Kethros as someone who has purely memorized the formulas of manhood, of what it means to be a courageous man, a chivalrous man, so on and so forth. But he has no idea how to derive these things from basic principles of decency or human kindness. And so what you have is a very surface layer understanding of what it means to be a man. Firm handshakes, stand up straight, look people in the eye, the sort of stuff that certainly where I grew up, and I suspect here as well, you're taught when you're a boy by all the men in your orbit that these are very important things. Mm. And if you ever start questioning it, like, okay, sure, a firm handshake sounds really important, I guess, but is that really the, the sort of what makes a man? I, that's shut down almost immediately. And so you have the sort of the, the, the almost illogical extrapolation of that kind of thinking present in Kethros. Whenever his surface layer understanding of what it means to be a man is pierced in any way by reality, by circumstances, all that's holding it up is violence. That's the one thing he resorts to, partially because he's a military man, he grew up in that kind of environment, uh, partially because of his very specific experience of being a peacekeeper who couldn't keep the peace and thinking of this thing that I suspect, you know, a lot of uh, soldiers who have been put in that position uh, might think, which is if we were just allowed to do our job, how many lives could we have saved if we weren't, you know, prevented from doing the thing, the one thing that differentiates soldiers from any other profession. Um, so he has all of these things going on, but he get it gets him into this, very bizarre situation where, for example, there's one scene in the book where he sees a girl drowning in, in the water and he rushes in and he saves her and he does this very chivalrous thing, brings her back to life, and then gets up and smacks her father for not showing up, showing enough decorum in the moment. I think of him as, as that kind of man. He has an ironclad understanding of what it means to be a man, but it's incredibly shallow. And the presence of this boy is a violation of that understanding because part of his understanding is that we need systems. What makes a civilized society is systems and order and rules. And here's this kid who's from a different part of the world, who's skirting all of these rules, who's making a mockery of everything he understands to be proper and right. And it enrages him in a way that um, I think he can't, he can't really control. For all the sort of troubling and violent um, aspects, it is somehow a quiet book, I found. And it speaks clearly instead of shouting about cruelty and hypocrisy. Would you read us a little bit? Sure, yeah. So I'll read you, I'll read you the shortest chapter in the book. The way the book is structured is we open on the scene of, of Amir, the boy, washing up on the shore of this unnamed Western island uh, the sole survivor of a migrant shipwreck. And from that point onwards, the chapters alternate into before and after chapters. The before chapters tell you everything that led up to that moment, 
and the after chapters let you know everything that happens from the moment he wakes up on this island. So from the moment you open the book, you know that there's been a shipwreck, but it's not till almost the end of the book that you see the, the moment where the ship actually goes down. So I'm not spoiling anything here, but this is the final before chapter, which is uh, just describing the moment that this very rickety fishing vessel that they're using to get across this vessel called the Calypso when it finally goes down. And I think, I think that's probably all you need to know. In the last moments, some held on dearly, leaving splinters of nail and streaks of blood between the boards. And although earlier the boat was filled with screaming, of these remaining few, none made a sound. Others, knowing now what was about to happen, what was inevitable, gave in, and without resistance were swept off the deck and into the water, and they too made no sound. In the distance, the island, the colored lights, the music. One final time, the waves lifted the calypso high. Under the force of a tumbling body, the mass snapped at its base. The sea overwhelmed, drowning the bloom of limbs that struggled to escape the lower quarters. Turning past the point of rebound, the old fishing boat flung its last few occupants still hanging on to the far starboard side into the air. For an instant, the deck became perpendicular to the surface of the water and then, like a closing eyelid, met it. Amir took flight, headlong into the seaborne sky, the roof of the great inverted world. In meeting him, the water was not cold or concussive, but warm and tranquil, its temperature the temperature of a body, the temperature of blood. With ease and without pain, he flew past the surface, past the depths, past the places where light and life surrendered and the domain of stillness began, and then lower, farther, past the crust of a million interlocking bodies who'd braved this passage before him and come to rest at the bottom, sick with the secrets of their own unallowed mourning, past the smallest flower-white bones, past the world at the feet of the world, to the lowest deep, then the lower deep still, until finally to a dry womb of a place in which were kept safe and unchanging everyone he had ever known and everyone each of these had ever known outward forever to encompass the whole of the living and the lived. And each of these the boy met in their old lives and their new lives waiting. And from each drew confession and each he felt into as though there were no barrier between them, no silo of self to keep us all waiting. Beautiful rebellion to feel into another, to feel anything at all. And then he surfaced. Ugh, I love that. I mean, I feel like I feel like the what makes the book literary. I mean, social commentary, but it's it's such a literary achievement is the love of language that is so obvious, and that and that allows something so horrendous to be rendered so beautifully. Thank you. That's that's very generous. I'm. Uh, I think I think all of these things. I don't know if you can write a novel and not have to contend with your own obsessiveness. Um, and I'm obsessive about words. and I'm obsessive about sentences and language. Every now and then it works out for me. Most of the time it doesn't. I remember my first novel, American War, which is a very purple book. And there's a lot of like descriptive language, like too much of it. And that's after 12 drafts of trying to strip away all the descriptive language. So whenever I go talk to creative writing students, I always want to show them the first draft of that book. People will find out what you're obsessive about, and I'm I'm obsessive about language. Well, it's part of what I loved about it, and part of what's in the in the question is about implicating of that sort of casual back and forth power racial implication. I think it is salient, but I hear what you're saying that you even wondered whether or not a Western reader would even take it up in the way you were trying. Yeah, I was worried because I mean. There's no other way to really say this. It's a deeply manipulative book in, in terms of what it's trying to do to the reader. It's testing the reader's tolerance for a particular emotional frequency. And it's, and it's doing it in a way that only becomes apparent over time. And that's not because I'm some kind of like misunderstood genius. That's a very deliberate thing. 
um, whether it, you know, for some people it works, for other people it absolutely does not. But but that's the kind of book I was trying to write, which is, it's a fraught thing to do. And when it goes wrong, it goes wrong quite badly. But it's part of what I love about the the effort of the book is to bring about more responsibility in the reader. That's what I was getting at with my question in staying in um, what's actually happening, not the way people want to see what's happening. So I appreciate you using the word manipulative. I might uh, <laughs> not <laughs> not use such a pejorative term, but you, you seem to favor them when you're talking about yourself. It's, you got it. You, I think, I don't know that you can undertake something like this and not, you can lie to everybody else, but I think you sort of have to be honest with yourself about what it is you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, I used to think when I was younger that these books would have this incredible world-changing effect mm. in the sense that, you know, you'd read American War and that would, you know, American War would cause the West to stop bombing brown people and so on. So, And none of that is true. And in the end, you have to live with the fact that Maybe the book does nothing. But even if that's the case, I think you should be absolutely certain of what your intent is on the off chance that the book doesn't achieve nothing, but it achieves something more than nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so I try to be honest about that, even if the books, again, are, are elaborate tricks, to use the Borges uh, quote. Even if they're elaborate tricks, I should know what the function of those tricks is or what the intent of those tricks is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't name the country in the book uh, where the after takes place, but um, in thinking about the media coverage of, you know, boatloads of people drowning in the Mediterranean trying to get to Greece, one of the most chilling aspects I found about the book was the backdrop of these tourists waiting for the beach to open back up. Um, was it intentional to leave the name of the country out because of how every country is turning people away? and? Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was intentional for that reason, but that's not the primary reason. That's one of the secondary reasons. The primary reason, I think, had to do with the notion of um, the fabulistic quality of the book, particularly as it relates to the plot uh, and how, how that all concludes. I talked earlier about before and after chapters. It was very deliberate on my part that the before chapters be hyper-specific in geography. All those places are, exist, whereas the after chapters, which take place on an island that is um, very closely modeled on the eastern coast of Crete. It's never mentioned in the book, but that's the geography that I was manipulating. When I got the copy edits back for this novel, the copy editor kept asking, what is Cloudstone? What are Sunhead Swifts? What are all these plants and animals? I've Googled them and I can't find, I can't find any reference to them. And I have to say, yeah, they're all made up. The entirety of the flora and fauna on the island is made up. It was very important to me that there be that distinction between the geography of the world of the before chapters and and the same of the after chapters because of what I was trying to do with the fable I was trying to tell. That has resulted in some pretty weird interpretations of what's happening in this book. The first four people to read the manuscript had four entirely different conceptions of what was happening in it. Um, and since that time, I have gotten some really interesting uh, descriptions of what people think is happening. Even now, if you go to the Goodreads page, there's a bunch of like questions from readers all related to the same part of the book. I won't go into any more into that, but yeah, I was, I was, um, I was deeply aware of this desire to make everything in the after chapters be very sort of fabulistic and to become more fabulistic and more fantastical as those chapters progressed as well. You're listening to Between the Covers on KBOO, Portland, 90.7. Well, going back to what you were saying just before that question, I feel like in the nonfiction world, in the news entertainment world, it doesn't inform in the way a character-driven narrative kind of sticks with people. And so I wonder about that, the after-chapter distinction that you're saying about the fable yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the fascinating things about, you know, I write these deeply political novels so that there's no getting away from, from contemporary reality. Even the first novel, American War, which is set 50 years in the future, 
is not a futuristic novel. It's very much like an indictment of the Bush and the Obama years, or an attempt at that anyway. And so that means that for the research material and for the things that I'm referencing in my fiction, we are talking about contemporary, you know, current affairs, politics, so on and so forth. And that led to a couple of really fascinating problems, one of which going back to this notion of reality being more fictional than the fictional. There's a couple of moments in the book that I consider to be the most fictional seeming in the book that are actually verbatim transcripts of real political exchanges. The politician who says, uh, well, if all these refugee women are coming here without their husbands, if their husbands are all dead, why do they keep asking for birth control? That's a real thing. There is, an, there is a speech that uh, Amir's family is watching in Egypt where this so-called general from the Egyptian uh, military is giving this press conference. That's uh, talking. Yeah, he's talking about how the Egyptian military has devised a cure for all diseases and <laughs> he gets a standing ovation. And it's the most nonsensical thing in a fairly nonsensical book in terms of its relationship with reality. And it was a real, you can look that press conference up. That's a real thing that happened. And so, you know, you think of fiction as having this obligation to intrude on reality. And that's a very hard mission statement to keep up. You're living in a time when reality is intruding on the fiction. Uh, that was one of the central challenges of putting this book together. That was a very chilling finding, what you just taught me. Oh. So while I was doing research, I, I did end up reading Incident at Owl Creek. And I, and I, after I finished What Strange Paradise, and I'd love to talk about the similarity you've talking spoken about in the structure, but I don't want to spoiler anything. Is there a way to talk about your decision to end the book with that? I mean, is there a way to talk about it? Because the, it's, the way it spins the idea of hope and the fragility of the wished for ending in the desperate sort of journey that Amir is on. If there isn't, you can just say no. But is there yeah, I mean, this is what I, what I meant earlier when I was talking about the book testing a reader's tolerance for particular emotional frequency oh. because it keeps pushing and pushing against the expected and then, um, well, and then it stops pushing. Um, I will say that the book is very, very different at a fairly fundamental level, depending on how familiar the reader is with the two works quoted in the epigraphs page. Peter Pan, the original Peter Pan by J.M. Barry, and An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is a fairly famous short story, um, particularly in this part of the world. I remember for I was doing a planning meeting for an event with, with Margaret Atwood, of all people, for some reason, she decided to have me on. I'm fully name dropping here, and I'm not ashamed to say it. We're just going to um, keep going with that in a minute anyway. Yeah, right. Uh, so, so for some reason, she decided to have me on for this event, and we were doing a planning Zoom meeting. And we have the same publisher in Canada, so she'd gotten her hands on the manuscript. She'd read it. And of course, because she's read everything that's ever been written, she immediately was like, oh, I see what you were doing with that quote up front. Don't think it slipped past me. And I thought, <laughs> no, no, it slipped past my editor. <laughs> like, it slipped past pretty well everyone else. Um, yeah, it's, it's um, part and parcel of the world as we would like it to be versus the world as it really is, and the many battlegrounds in which those two mm. things go to fight it out. This book is one of those battlegrounds. It's a constant fight between the world as we wish it to be and the world as it is based on our action or inaction. And it could have been maybe a better book if I had gone in a different direction, uh, but it needed to, this is the book I needed to write. And I can tell you, you know, I went through eight drafts the only thing that didn't change, the only thing I had from draft one through draft eight was the opening paragraph and the closing paragraph. Oh, that's, um, those that's were so welded to the manuscript. Everything else got changed. Oh, that's so good to know because I thought, I thought at the penultimate ending, I thought I, I couldn't ask for a better ending, but then the, the closing image and the gentleness of the action, you know what I'm talking about, the gentleness mm -hmm. at the very end, um, it was like a white hot poker in terms of creating the emotional distress of what we wish the ending of things will be versus what actually happened. I I absolutely adored it. Thank you. I can say I've gotten a lot of angry emails. I'll say that much yeah, well, about this particular topic. Well, that's its own kind of that's its own kind of compliment, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, no, I find that I find it very comforting that people have a strong reaction any anyway to to particularly the conclusion of the book. I think is is um, is a really powerful thing and something for which I'm very grateful. Well, and also it circles back to what you were saying about the why. Like you have a litmus test of the why is what's the complex, unsimplifiable emotions you want to evoke in your reader. It seems like you had a good good result as far as feedback. It's funny because when I teach classes, one of the first things I tell students is be careful of the temptation to work backwards from an effect, uh, to work backwards from an effect on the reader. The story suffers. And of course, as soon as I sit down to write my own work, I immediately give in to the temptation to work backwards from an effect. I've, I've gotten slightly better at it, but not that much better at it over the years. You really, you really make it sound real, this idea that people talk about, like, I, what I just, my last novel was no preparation for my next one. Like, I... Yep, yep, that is absolutely true. Tell us about what you're working on now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with the caveat that I may give up on this at any at any moment, um, I'm I'm hoping to work on. I, I'm actually tomorrow. I start work on um, what I hope will be the next novel, and it's a very different kind of book. It's um, it's speculative. It's set in the distant future, towards the end of our species. It's um, a sprawling mess of a book. I have about. 150 pages of notes and I have one and a half pages of actual writing so I need to fix that asymmetry a little bit yeah it's a love story set in the in the last days of capitalism and uh, it's good it's right now it's in that beautiful place where nothing has been written so it's the it's best novel perfect. ever <laughs> yeah it's completely perfect and as the soon as I start not a garden out, shed <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um, I over the next month which I'm dedicating to the work, uh, I will find out just how much of a garden shed it actually is. But uh, right now it is a castle in my head. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Thanks for listening to this episode of Between the Covers here on KBOO Portland 90.7 FM with original music from John Bechtel. If you'd like to hear the longer version of this talk, head to kboo.org.